This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. This Tuesday, Amazon founder and the richest man on the planet, Jeff Bezos, entered space for the first time. This was the Virgin Flight for Blue Origin, the space travel company that Bezos founded, and he went on a trip that lasted 10 minutes and 10 seconds. Bezos' trip came just days after billionaire Richard Branson reached the edge of space on board his Virgin Galactic rocket plane. That company currently has more than 600 reservations for a trip that costs his commercial passengers $250,000 apiece. The company hopes to launch to the public next year. While the White House called Bezos' flight a moment of American exceptionalism, others have been less than thrilled to see the wealthiest in the country head into the heavens. One representative said, space travel isn't a tax-free holiday for the wealthy. We pay taxes on plane tickets. Billionaires flying into space, producing no scientific value, should do the same, and then some. Another critic was the former head of World Vision, Richard Stearns. He said this on his Twitter account, watching the coverage of the billionaires going into space and the notion that it may pave the way for all of us in the future. Can I just ask why they think everyone will want to go into space for eight minutes? And how is this a good use of millions of money? How about curing cancer? It is estimated that Bezos spent $5.5 billion to achieve his space flight. That same amount of money could have bought clean water to 110 million people who currently have no access. It also could have given a $4,000 raise to every one of Amazon's 1.3 million employees. Amazon made $24 billion income last year, and it paid $1.8 billion in taxes. After his flight, Bezos thanked, quote, every Amazon employee and every Amazon customer because you guys paid for all of this. He also has said that he funds his company by selling $1 billion of Amazon stock annually. We wanted to ask ourselves, should Christians cheer on billionaires in space. You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson. I am Executive Editor at Christianity Today. All right. Ted, there are bazillion things to wrestle with and get into, and this is kind of feels like an eclectic topic for us to talk about, but I'm really happy we're having this conversation. I want to know what you feel and how these stories have been driving with you. You know, I used to run, you know, during a, a period where I was not as involved in, in Christianity Today magazine. I had a magazine called The Behemoth, uh, where we looked at kind of things of awe and wonder and you know, one of the things we kept turning to in that was space and space travel because it's a it's a on wonder go to. It's it's easy to get to on wonder from from space. You have the kid, the kid aspect where you're just kind of passionate about seeing rockets, seeing space. And back when I could, there used to be a, a live camera attached to the International Space Station. had had some kind of scientific purpose to it but the best thing about it is you can go to a few different streaming services and just look at this camera that was pointed down towards earth from the space station and get kind of get this sense of uh, not quite the big blue dot because it's a little closer to the earth but you could seeing earth from orbit there's something magical about it i mean i'm sure it's much more magical if you're in space looking down 
But there's something magical about being like, man, I'm seeing this image from space of where I am. The things the astronauts say about, you know, shrinks the earth and makes you like think about the the unity of humanity and it makes you think about creation. There's kind of almost, an, you know, it's a lot of times some kind of religious epiphanies that happen there. I'm still watching on a big screen TV, not with my own eyes, but it's it had that effect. It's it, it was, you know, more powerful than kind of watching one of those BBC nature documentaries being like, wow, like. God made God made something pretty awesome here. When I was a little kid in grade school, I was around for the first landing of the first space shuttle. We had a news crew come to my elementary school and they went around, they talked to a bunch of kids and they were interviewing them about their reaction to the space shuttle landing. I didn't know what they were going to ask. So they asked this question. I was ready because, you know, I was, I was kind of interested. But they asked, you know, how do you think this is going to change your life? I just looked at the camera and I, I don't think it is. Even though I was so excited about space, I prompted with that question. My heart wanted to talk about how cool it was, but I had a hard time thinking like, wait, does this actually make any difference to me or is it just something that's kind of cool? And I guess that moment, which I've, yeah, I guess reflected on since I was single digits years old, has kind of kept coming back to me of like, I find this stuff really, really, really cool. But I also do struggle sometimes with being like, okay, is it making a difference? Like knowledge is good on its own basis, but wait, all this does have a cost. Is it worth it? So I've been struggling with some of those questions my, my whole life long, even though, man, do I appreciate the awe and wonder that have come with the benefits of, of space travel. How about you, Morgan? I share a lot of the tendency that you have to geek out about space and definitely was guilty of borrowing many a book about space growing up from the library and up to the point that I got really tired of books that were old because and I could tell how old they were based on how many moons they gave to Saturn into them. I guess, you know, there was a period where we were discovering so many different Saturn moons that books would have to be revised to include more accurate information. But yeah, I would say I did not feel maybe completely excited about this week for some of the tensions that we got into above. I think someone like Jeff Bezos personally is a little bit hard to root for in many ways. And yeah, he's not just a school teacher or a scientist who we are only learning about days before he ends up going into space. Um, He's someone who has created a very polarizing and successful company that's out there. And yeah, I've read a number of stories about Amazon in the past year that make it challenging for me, I guess, to see all of his accomplishments as being universally good. And I do have questions about, you know, how billionaires do spend their money when I think about all the people that work at Amazon warehouses and the ways that their lives are. Um, Yeah, I don't think that... Amazon may see itself as going out there to be cruel, but there were a lot of really harsh ways that a lot of people um, in these warehouses were treated last year. And obviously, I also have a soft spot for companies that Amazon has kind of put out of business as well. So that's where my loyalties are a little biased, I guess, when I'm thinking of what it means for him to get into space. Yeah. And I would also add that, you know, the amount that Amazon does not pay in taxes is also significant too and kind of shaping that. So yeah, it's hard to divorce those two things from my mind, which is why I'm glad that we're having this conversation today with someone who has done work 
or at least consulted with commercial space travel and so forth. So who is our guest, Ted? And knows a lot about what's the return? Like, what are we learning? How important is human spaceflight? And that's someone who is closely tied to human spaceflight. Mark Shellhammer is the former chief scientist of NASA's human research program and professor of otolaryngology, head and neck surgery at John Hopkins University, where he's also director of the Human Spaceflight Lab. Most recently, he also became the director and founder of the Bioastronautics at Hopkins Initiative. He's been involved in human spaceflight research since he was a grad student in the 1980s, and he's an advisor to the Commercial Spaceflight Federation. He's also written for one of my favorite magazines that is not published by Christianity Today, which is God of Nature. It's a publication of the American Scientific Affiliation. And so I am thrilled that he is here on Quick to Listen. Thanks for being on the show, Mark. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I could talk about human spaceflight all day. Sometimes I start with a little bit of Christianity Today history here. You know, back in the day, back when, uh, back in, um, well, it was in 1958, CT ran in one of its first issues, a Christian look at the space age. And then we also did a piece called Moonshot, its meaning to 25 scholars, where we kind of had everyone from Carl Barth to F.F. Uh, F. Bruce and Neil Brunner and Carl Henry and C.S. Lewis, all sorts of folks writing about what does kind of human space flight and, and what does astronautics mean to Christianity and or to kind of our understanding of who we are in the cosmos. A lot of different kind of views here. There is this controversy now, I guess, about kind of public versus private funded human space flight. But help us understand a little bit historically, because I know you know a lot about the history of this stuff. How controversial was just the expense of human space flight generally through this history of the 50s and 60s and all this kind of thing? Did you have some of the similar debate about like, hey, man, this is really, really expensive. We, we don't know. Or was there just a grand, we often talk about the space age. Was there just so much enthusiasm for this and so much kind of Cold War energy about it that there wasn't as much of a debate? There is a tendency. I, look, I have this tendency too. I am a child of the Apollo program. You know, I was 10 years old when they first landed on the moon. That has been inspirational to me and in my career. It's a cliche, right? If we can land on the moon, why can't we do X? <laughs> right? The technological feat of doing that still never ceases to amaze me. And, and I find it to be motivational. Yeah, there is a tendency to romanticize a lot of this and say, no, back in the good old days, the Apollo program, the early days of the American space program in the 60s, maybe early 70s, it was all united. There wasn't all this agonizing and questioning. Not true to a great extent. There was a lot of concern. Now, th this was a Cold War effort. Make no mistake about that. Even to this day, uh, President Kennedy's speeches on the matter are very inspiring and very compelling. They kind of skirt around the issue of it being a Cold War battle. But he does say in one of them that the recent events in space, referring to the Soviet Union putting a man in space, recent events in space have made an impact on those who are trying to make a decision as to with which path to follow. And he is talking about non-aligned nations figuring out whether they should align themselves with the Soviet Union and communism or the American system and democracy. So that's what he's talking about in that case. He couched it in, to some extent, in Cold War terms. That was very much what drove the early astronauts 
especially people like Frank Borman, who listened to some of the things he had to say back then about the science part of the Apollo program. That's not why he was there. He was there to fight a Cold War battle. And if you're fighting a Cold War battle on a world stage like that, the expense is not a consideration. It was an expensive operation, no doubt about that. The Apollo program was taking, at its peak, which did not last long, about 4% of the federal budget. These days, it's more like 0.4% of the federal budget is taken by NASA. But even Kennedy, when he realized how expensive the Apollo program was going to be, started to have some misgivings. He was asking his advisors, and there's even a speech at the United Nations that he gave, about backpedaling a little bit and trying to co- to cooperate with the Soviet Union rather than compete with the Soviet Union because, hey, it's impossible that neither of our nations can afford to do this. And there's also a recording, and he had a talk with James Webb, who was the NASA administrator at the time. And Kennedy was saying, I'm not that interested in space. Are there things that we can cut back from the NASA initiative that aren't directly relevant to sending people to the moon, because that's really what we're in this for, is to win that particular battle of the Cold War. And to his credit, James Webb said, no, sir, Mr. President, this is our opportunity to build a spaceflight infrastructure in this country that will serve us for decades to come. So even Kennedy, who started this whole thing in the United States, was having second thoughts about the cost. And you know there were going to be 20 Apollo missions. There were going to be, they stopped at Apollo 17. There was going to be 18, 19, and 20 were going to land on the moon. And they were cut out because of those missions were incredibly dangerous, incredibly risky. Every one of those flights was skirting disaster. That may Mm -hmm. be overstating it, but maybe not by much. NASA wanted to quit while they were ahead, but also they were incredibly expensive. And Congress just wasn't wasn't on board anymore for more moon landings after they did six. I'm interested in some of the, the, the quotes that appeared in that you know, 1958 Christianity Today article where there was there was some anxiety that both there was some, you know, like pride in like being able to go to the moon or, you know, getting into space. You know, there are a number of, of these kind of theologians that were asked about this who <laughs> had some concern about pride and arrogance and some of the lines in here do echo some of what I'm hearing now about, you know, the, the concern about billionaires just doing this out to feed their own ego. Carl Henry, who was, you know, editor of Christianity Today at the time, he kind of, uh, he had this line. He was probably one of the most negative people on it. He said, fallen man vaunts his genius and power to disguise his moral nakedness and spiritual bankruptcy. He shoots from the moon, much in the spirit of proud Lucifer, exalting himself against God. In fact, <laughs> In the Bible, Satan is prince of the power of the air. To bend the universe to God's purpose is man's divinely given task. But a sinner, he exploits the universe. He reaches for infinity to vaunt his own glory. I'm like, wow, that's some negativity about spaceflight right there. We talked a little bit about the kind of cost here associated with it, but was there this concern in the, some of that early space flight program just in terms of public opinion that like this is man flying too close to the sun, I suppose, would be the more mythical reference. But was there a concern about arrogance and pride associated with space flight? There was. You know, there have been books written about this that have explored that. It, it's a really intriguing question. It, it strikes me as either being 
incredibly profound or incredibly misplaced. <laughs> uh, you know what? I love that line. I'm going to use that one for, we can almost use that in, in many different episodes of Quick to Listen here. Yes. It, it, profound and misplaced is good. Yeah, that's Exactly. True. I don't mean to disparage anyone's legitimate concerns, but that argument about basically humanity's hubris, you know, you can apply that to anything. And it has been applied to almost any technical or scientific accomplishment that people think we're getting into God's domain, where we have no business doing this. If God had intended man to fly, he would have given us wings. Well, he gave us the ability to create flying machines. There's a counter argument. At what point do you want to stop microscopes? What business do we have peering into the inner workings of the human body? But why not apply the same reasoning, non-human spaceflight? People are fascinated by the Hubble Space Telescope. As you're probably aware, my wife is the chief scientist for the Hubble Space Telescope. The discoveries that are made astronomically are incredible, but they're on a continuum. They're not different in kind, I think, from what we find by sending humans into space. So if there's an argument to be made about the hubris of, of humans, why is that reserved for sending humans into space? Why isn't it more broadly applied? In all of those cases, I think the bottom line is that all of these ventures are humans' way, our way of understanding our place in the universe, understanding our place in the creation. I find it hard to believe that that is not a worthwhile thing to pursue. And it, that's scientific exploration. That's human exploration. To some extent, we go because we can go, and it will change our perspective on who we are and how we fit into the universe. That at the bottom line is why I think we do this. I think what you're getting at, Mark, is a little bit of how some people who are maybe not in the scientific world can sometimes view discovery as being a bit superfluous. And the way that you articulated it right there is not necessarily the framework by which many people are hearing those arguments made. Would you say that there are times where exploration can be self-aggrandizing or a misplaced priority? You know, maybe not a bad one, but the money that it would cost to run something ends up being money that is diverted from potentially something that should be a more significant priority? I'm going to say yes, absolutely, but also no. So absolutely, of course, there's a history of exploration, including science exploration, being turned into exploitation. Not a historian, except maybe in the, of human spaceflight, but it's not hard to find examples of that colonization, a variety of things, even more recently taking the arguments about cloning, arguments about what CRISPR gene editing is able to do. You know, those things can be very risky. And when they become, when they get, let's say, out of the laboratory, in some sense, they're still in the laboratory, when they get out of the research discovery phase and start being applied, that's a conversation that should be held more broadly because they have significant implications for all of us. So, of course, there can be self-aggrandizement. There can be the whole question, you know, really don't want to go down this 
this tangent, but it's a, a worthwhile discussion that people are having. Though, the question about using animals in research, I think that's very valuable. There are some things that you absolutely do not want to try on humans before you've tried them on another living being. Okay, sorry, call it a necessary evil if, if you want. But it's very, it would be very easy, hypothetically, I'm sure we could find examples where people would take that too far and just do the experiment because it's possible to do it. Having said that, basic science is a very tricky thing, and it's something that, that people generally, I think, don't understand, who don't, who, who don't do science or don't have science scientific background or, or have not have been familiar, are not familiar with science. There's a tremendous number of technological advances that benefit our everyday lives that are the result of a serendipitous finding, an unexpected finding of somebody just, frankly, screwing around in the laboratory. They're aiming for something and they find something else. Penicillin, right? Mold, red mold. And it takes a scientific insight and scientific genius to capitalize on that observation. You know, you hear this once in a while from people lamenting that, you know, how, how much money is spent on scientific research? Well, not enough is the straight answer. But if they want to complain about that, they could say, well, why don't we just spend money on the important research? Well, we don't know what's going to be important five or 10 years from now. We have no idea. So to some extent, research, including, I think, the research that is that comes along with sending people into space, including astronomical observations on that continuum, we don't know where these are going to lead. We don't know what may happen to our change in perspective of humanity when we start sending large numbers of people who do not have rigorous scientific training into space, people who can afford to take the time to enjoy the view, relish the, ex the experience, poets, philosophers, what are they going to come back and report to us that people who have uh, sent so far just have not had the time to think about. That's a pretty compelling reason, I, I think. What I'm not unpersuaded by the type of argument that there's going to be things that we just like don't even know, right? You don't know what you don't know that's out there and that those things will change and could possibly benefit our life here on earth. But I do think that one of the ways that many people would push back, specifically when we're thinking of billionaires going into space, is that at least for me, my my gut reaction is, okay, yes, maybe Jeff Bezos's flight and the company that he started are going to do things that positively benefit humanity. But I know something that Jeff Bezos could do right now to improve humanity, and that is he could pay his workers more, or he could pay, you know, Amazon could pay taxes. So do you think that there's a little bit of a different equation when you transition from a government-funded initiative to one that talks about how private individuals are choosing to spend their money? And does that complicate how we might think about something like this? I think that's a legitimate concern. I, I'm not here to be an apologist for the business practices of Jeff Bezos or Richard Branson or Elon Musk, for that matter. They have created phenomenal businesses that otherwise would not have existed. They created, essentially, the commercial human spaceflight industry from nothing in less than 20 years or so. That's an amazing accomplishment when you consider 
that it was the domain of national entities and governments for such a long period of time. It would have been deemed impossible. To some extent, that needs to be separated from, from the other concerns that you mentioned. It's always possible to find a good way for somebody else to spend his or her money, right? I mean, you could probably look at the way I spend <laughs> yeah. money, right? <laughs> right? This is a dangerous road to go down, right? I'm not about to cast the first stone in this argument and say the rich people should be spending their money differently. If you knew how I spent some of my discretionary income on my hobbies, I'm not going to call them vices. I'm going to call them hobbies. You know, anybody could come in and say, well, you know, you spent X amount of money on this thing, a concert ticket or a new piece of electronics, which is uh, in my home workshop. Boy, you know, you could have given that to X and used that to buy another meal for the underprivileged or whatever. And yeah, okay, I could have. But you know, maybe I already give to those causes and maybe I work extra hours in consulting to make the money specifically so that I have the discretionary discretionary funds to reward myself for that extra work. Would it be better if I didn't work that hard and didn't make the money at all? So you know, I want to turn the question around a little bit and say, again, I don't want to be an apologist for, for these people, for these billionaires. You know, they didn't make their money. Well, there may be some questionable tax practices. Okay, I get that. But by and large, they made their money in legal business ventures above board. They're not criminal enterprises, but let's say. To that extent, would we be better off if we said the world would be better if you weren't so successful and didn't make that money in the first place, and then we wouldn't be having this argument at all. But they made the money from their own efforts. They get to decide how to spend it. The debate's a little bit different between talking about you know, spending tax money to do human spaceflight and a you know, billionaire spending their money or creating a company to spend money to do some human space flight. And in some ways, the government encouraging and contracting with private companies to you know send folks up to the uh, ISS as, as this happened. You've worked in the NASA side of things. You know, you're, you're advising folks on the private side of things. Like, what are some of the key differences in the questions that you ask when you are a government agency sending folks into space? and a private company sending folks into space. Do the questions fundamentally change? Well, yeah, I think the questions, there are some overlap. The questions can become broader. So I, I got to say, first of all, this is, you're not couching it this way, and I appreciate that. It's not, they're not mutually exclusive, right? NASA has, right, government space programs have a role to play. They should be doing the things that are, maybe too expensive or too risky or too uncertain or too, let's say, fundamental scientifically to attract commercial interest. That's their role. That's always been their role. That was their role in, I don't know if people forget it, forget this, that was their role in encouraging commercial aviation in the last century, the previous century. They did it through a large part by sponsoring airmail. That is arguably a perfect role for the government because otherwise there was no way for fledgling aircraft companies or airline companies, I guess there were no airline companies, but, but air transport companies to really make money. 
So the government steps in and says, well, we'll support this. We'll make sure that you have at least enough funding because we need airmail. We need the mail delivered. And this was not unanimously accepted idea. You can imagine the arguments at the time. Mail by horse-drawn carriage and railroad is good enough. Why do we need air travel? Now, <laughs> I can't say that I've seen those arguments, but I can imagine that they would have occurred. And now we're, where would we be today? We all benefit from commercial aviation. The fact that it is commercial and there is a profit motive means that the cost has come down and the accessibility has been incredibly broadened. Anybody, almost anybody in this country can afford to take an, air, an airplane flight now. So that's one of the things that's going to be different about this. NASA's mandate is not to commercialize. NASA's mandate is not, except through doing the basic research that permits safe space travel, their mandate is not to send large numbers of people into space. And we could argue whether it's worthwhile to spend large numbers of people into space. But if they want to go, how could it be a bad thing to provide them with that opportunity? The cost is going to come down. This may look bad now. It may look like a, this is the domain of a bunch of rich people, and how can that possibly be good for us? Well, yeah, that's how it starts. Airline travel at first was incredibly expensive. It can only be afforded by the, by the wealthy. The costs will come down to a great extent because the commercial providers, Virgin Galactic, Blue Origin, SpaceX, are pioneering reusable rockets and reusable spacecraft. So the space shuttle was a big step in that direction, didn't achieve that as well as NASA had hoped, and they still threw away the solid rocket boosters and the external tank. The spacecraft came back, needed a lot of refurbishment. But these companies, the, the commercial providers, are really through the desire to make a profit, through a commercial interest, are pushing the boundaries to reduce the cost, and eventually that's going to benefit a lot of people. What could possibly be bad about providing anyone who wants to and can afford it, still going to be steep, with the opportunity to go into space and experience what astronauts have experienced for decades, the overview effect, the change in perspective that you get from being in space? God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. 
Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. So I have a question about something that I had read somewhere about how when astronauts are being sent up into space these days, they are actually using SpaceX technology. Is that correct? That is, in fact, correct. Yes. So NASA for a long time, and, and this is kind of an interesting thing to follow because no matter what no matter what happened along the way, there was always some group that was ready to criticize whatever decision was made. So NASA was originally sending astronauts. The Russians had their own system. The Russians use a Soyuz spacecraft, which they've been using for a long time, very reliable, to get cosmonauts to the space station. The Americans were using, until it was retired, the space shuttle. Space shuttle was incredibly expensive. Uh, you'd have to look at the exact number, but it's something like a half a billion dollars per flight of the space shuttle. So NASA retired to space shuttle 2011 and had to buy tickets on the Soyuz spacecraft from Russia to get our astronauts up to the space station. And people lamented the short-sightedness of letting the shuttle go. Well, okay, but we were paying the Soviet, the Russians a lot less than a half a billion dollars per flight. So you could argue that that was actually a wise thing economically to retire the space shuttle, at least for this use. But people criticized NASA for that. Now, NASA has contracted with SpaceX and Boeing. Boeing does not have their spacecraft flying yet, but they will soon. And SpaceX now flies uh, under contract to NASA SpaceX flies NASA astronauts to the space station. NASA no longer has to pay for seats on a Soyuz spacecraft from Russia. There's a government industry collaboration. And we're already going to see the fruits of this in September. September 15th is the presumed launch date. SpaceX is going to launch the first all-commercial crew to low Earth orbit. It's not going to go to the space station going to orbit for three or four days. This flight was paid for, all the seats, four seats, by a internet billionaire. But guess what? They're going to be doing medical research on that flight. The arguments start to break down when you look at the details and look at the people who are going to fly on that flight. Two women, no longer purely the domain of rich white men. There is something that kind of comes up in, inside. Like, I don't know, there's like the good kind of pride. There's just kind of like, I can't believe we figured out how to do this, like bring a rocket back for someone who grew up <laughs> seeing them all kind of launch out into the sea. And, and, and you know, the space shuttle was a big deal that you could kind of bring that thing back. Those videos, I don't know, I found those videos incredibly, incredibly inspiring just to get up and then dock with the space station. In some of these 
public-private partnerships. Can you help us understand, like, there are different companies trying to do different things, and some of them are a little bit more focused on on delivery vehicles. Some are are a little more focused on the tourism aspect. Some of them are more focused on other. Are there significant differences between the, the Boeing program, the SpaceX program, the Blue Orbit? Help us understand a little bit what's going on in real quick, real broad strokes with some of these new private companies. Yeah. Okay. That is another really good question to provide context because you may get the impression from the press coverage that it's just Bezos and Branson and okay, okay, Musk, but he's actually doing something by sending, you know, something useful, arguably, by sending things to the space station under NASA contract. Space and commercial spaceflight, and not only human, but but also untended or other forms of spaceflight, this is a growth industry. This is big. It's big and it's going to get bigger, partly because the costs are coming down. The costs are coming down partly because of increased reusability of the rockets and some of the spacecraft, which NASA had not been able to make significant headway on for a long time. We talk about NASA and we talk about government space agencies. Remember, NASA contracts out to commercial aerospace companies to actually build the rockets and the spacecraft. It may be government funded, but to some extent, there's always been commercial vendors and industry presence. Spaceflight is big. I have more students now coming to me for to wanting to do research in the area of human spaceflight than I ever have before. And it's partly because NASA is going back to the moon and Mars and the commercial providers are getting headlines. They're making this look feasible. This is realistic now. It's possible to talk about sending people to the moon and Mars without people laughing in your face, which they used to do for a long time, and sending normal people into space. But okay, back to your question. There's a large number of companies that are working on building satellites, small satellites, what are called nanosats or cubesats, small satellites that you can make relatively cheaply, send a lot of them up. This can wreak havoc with astronomical observations, so I'm not cavalier about the concerns there. But nevertheless, it's going to bring the cost of Earth observation satellites and tracking of terrestrial resources and space monitoring for radiation, variety of things. It's going to bring those costs down. A lot of companies working in that general field. There's companies building rockets that you probably have never heard of. There's a company called Made in Space that has a 3D printer. It's called additive manufacturing now, but 3D printing, there's one up on the International Space Station. This is a commercial venture. There's companies building biomedical sensors for people to take on their private space flights, which have a tremendous number of terrestrial spinoffs. There's a whole slew of companies in a whole bunch of different industries that you might not immediately associate with space flight or human space flight. And not all of them are going to survive. There will be a shakeout. There always has been. But many of them are going to survive and thrive. Now, in terms of the specific companies, yeah, there are three major players. There's also a company called Sierra Nevada, which we don't hear about too much, but they're developing a um, suborbital spacecraft, a little bit more along the lines of the Virgin Galactic spacecraft. So let me go in order from briefly from the ones that have the less ambitious plans to the more ambitious. So Virgin Galactic, that's Richard Branson's company. They flew a week and a half or so ago. That's a suborbital 
mission. The spacecraft is unusual in that it is taken up under the wings of a mothership. It's not a conventional aircraft by any means, but at least a more standard airplane. And it is dropped and it lights its rocket and goes up and you're in suborbital space for a few minutes, comes back down and lands on a runway. So it is ready to use again after some inspection and and refurbishment. The plans for Richard Branson are to are to also send satellites into space with a different company, Virgin Orbit, it's called. I don't know that Virgin Galactic has plans to send humans into orbit. They may have plans to scale up their suborbital spacecraft to permit transcontinental air travel via suborbital spacecraft. The Virgin Galactic spacecraft basically was launched and landed in the same geographical area. But imagine if it launched from the West Coast and landed in Japan a half hour. Well, that technology could potentially be scaled up to do that. So I think that's what Virgin Galactic has, has their eye on. The next one up would be Blue Origin. So Blue Origin is Jeff, Jeff Bezos' company. They're the ones who flew just recently. They want to expand their suborbital capability. Their spacecraft is very interesting in that it is more conventional in terms of the, the history of space travel. It goes up on a more or less conventional rocket. It's not conventional because it's reusable. You saw that if you watched the coverage, right? The, the rocket came back down. They'll refurbish it and use it again. So it's not thrown away. The same with the spacecraft. But unlike the Virgin Galactic suborbital spacecraft, the Blue Origin spacecraft called New Shepard, after uh, Alan Shepard, first American in space, suborbital space, by the way, that spacecraft does not have a pilot or a crew. It's completely automated. It's completely automated because it, it's a much more conventional flight profile. It goes up, the rocket pulls away, the spacecraft continues up on a ballistic trajectory, starts re-entering the atmosphere, the parachutes pop out, it lands on the ground. And there's not much that a pilot could do in that spacecraft. So it's highly automated and there's more room for, frankly, paying customers in there. Blue Origin has much broader ambitions. Jeff Bezos has said for a long time, he wants to take humanity and all of its polluting ways off of the surface of the Earth and put them into Earth orbit, kind of make Earth, in some sense, a national park, a nature preserve. That's very ambitious. But people like <laughs> Gerard K. O'Neill, yeah, a little bit ambitious, but people like Gerard K. O'Neill from Princeton, who Jeff Bezos took a course with when he was in college, have been talking about this general idea for decades. If that were ever successful, it would take decades if not centuries. Nevertheless, that doesn't seem like a necessarily a bad thing to do. You have to stop the argument when people say, oh, yeah, that's great for all the people who can afford it. The cost is going to come down. People can't, Only rich people can afford it now because it's only been done twice. So that's, a, in some sense, a specious argument. The costs will, will come down. The Blue Origin also has its eyes on building, I believe they're one of the companies that got a contract from NASA to build a lunar lander, a human lunar lander, 
for NASA's current plans to send people back to the moon. Blue Origin is flying suborbital, but they also have very ambitious plans for deeper space, like the moon. And then there's SpaceX, which is Elon Musk. SpaceX has for a while been providing cargo service to the International Space Station, along with a number of other companies. There are other ones that are that send cargo up, and they have been doing this for a long time, under contract with NASA to send cargo to the space station. Twice now they have done it. They have sent astronauts to the space station. So they're able to capitalize on that cargo spacecraft capability, make it a human spacecraft, And then, since they've done that, they're going to be able to sell those flights to, these are even more, if you thought suborbital flight was expensive, orbital flight is tremendously expensive, but at least people are doing it. Like I said, this Inspiration4 flight on a SpaceX spacecraft coming up in in September. And Elon Musk also has his plans on much, much bigger things, plans to die on Mars just not, <laughs> just just not on landing. <laughs> right, not on, not on uh, impact. You know, he plans on dying as an old man on Mars. Now, maybe he will, maybe he won't. The thing is, we have a commercial for-profit venture that's talking seriously about sending people to Mars. This is new. This has never been possible before. Realistic and people taking it seriously. So referencing, again, that 1958 article where we talked to a bunch of, you know, we, CT, talked to a bunch of theologians, there is this line where one of the guys who's most eager for, you know, it's like, no, this, this is great to me, it was, was John Gerstner. John Gerstner, he's at Pittsburgh Xenia Theological Seminary, he says, it seems to me that exploration draws us neither closer nor further from God and has no implications for the state of man's depravity, except that it illustrates once again that fallen men can be very able scientists. But then he ends with the line, I see nothing more sinister in the discovery of the moon than in the discovery of America, which he meant in a very different way than kind of rings in 2021 when there's a little bit of a different cast to the discussion of the the quote-unquote discovery of America. As we've talked about, one of the great hopes is with the unknown unknown. So there's going to be stuff that that we learn in human space flight that will be unexpected discoveries. That there's going to be all sorts of things that we we don't know. Space is really different, and in all of our different uh, experiences in space, we're gonna we're gonna learn more about ourselves and more about the physics and all discoveries and things we can make and things we can do. You you're someone who's you know done a lot of work on you know the human body risks in space. If we're hoping for unexpected discoveries, should we also be concerned about unexpected ethical dilemmas? Wow. Yes, of course, of course. Whenever. Geez, whenever some great thing happens that has fantastic advantages and great benefits for humanity, people will never pass up an opportunity to screw it up. We know that. Look at the internet. Look at television. In in all of these cases, people thought that this was, imagine what this is going to bring to the common individual, the average citizen. Imagine the world, the intellectual worlds that will be opened up. and. Yes, that is true, but it's also brought along less desirable qualities. So just like I said, exploration can easily be be turned into exploitation. Of course, we have to look out for that. That's why conversations like this are, are, are so important. There are going to be snake oil salesmen and various uh, underhanded ventures that try to capitalize on this. 
okay, that doesn't mean you don't do it. It's going to be done anyway. Somebody's going to do it anyway. So why not try to make it transparent and, and do it correctly? Let me backtrack, though. Having answered your direct question, never pass up an opportunity to talk about the research aspect of things. That's what really drives me. And I, it's something that I think has been missing from almost every conversation that I've seen so far. These flights, the suborbital ones, certainly the, certainly the orbital ones to come, the Inspiration4 flight that I mentioned, they open up opportunities for research that would never have been available before. This does not mean I'm going to give up my NASA-sponsored research. It means I'm going to incorporate the possibilities of commercial flight providers into my research portfolio. The NASA Flight Opportunities Program right now has a solicitation out soliciting for grants to do research in the area of technology development, so kind of R&D type of research on, among other things, suborbital flight spacecraft. They're basically saying, look at the opportunities this has for pushing technologies that might benefit science and technology engineering on Earth and also future space flights. Yes, we, NASA, will fund that research, even though it's going to fly on a commercial platform. I'm submitting a grant proposal to that solicitation. I've been working, as you mentioned at the beginning, as a, an advisor to the Commercial Space Flight Federation for 12 years. Back when we started, we thought these flights were going to be two years away, two years away. To, so they were always two years away. Now they're actually happening. The possibility that I can fly into space with my own experiment, just like I'm there in the laboratory to watch an experiment that I do, that's fascinating to me. The ability to have to follow up on a serendipitous observation that comes about because you're actually watching your experiment be done and you're the expert in that experiment. And astronauts are amazing people. They're amazing individuals, but they're rarely expert scientific experts in the science that they're doing on the space station. There are some exceptions. Kate Rubens is an exception. She's a biochemist, and she does that type of research, among others, on the space station. But it's unreasonable to expect an astronaut doing a variety of things on a space flight to be an expert on every scientific domain. And, and I'll tell you from my personal experience, I've done a lot of parabolic flights under NASA support. So this is the Vomit Comet. It goes up an aircraft that goes up and flies a parabolic trajectory and you're weightless for about 20, 25 seconds at a time, but it's 30 to 40 times in a row. So you can actually do some good science. And there are occasions in which me performing my own experiment as the test subject in a parabolic flight observed something unexpected and capitalized on that. That would not have happened if I were not flying with the experiment. So now I can fly, not just me, but Almost any investigator who's willing to do it can fly on a suborbital space flight because it's a lot cheaper than flying to the space station and a lot more accessible. So I wanted to make sure that the research aspects of, of these flights were not lost. And one of the people who flew on the Virgin Galactic flight is Sarisha Bondla. I've known Sarisha for, for quite a while because of our joint work in before she worked for Virgin Galactic. She was like me kind of an advisor to the industry 
And part of what she did during the flight was she took at her own initiative, she dedicated some of her precious free time in weightlessness, some of the time that she could have been used to float around the cabin, enjoy the zero G experience, which I can tell you is thrilling just from doing it 20 seconds at a time and looking out the windows. She devoted some of that to a very simple, but very, it's a pathfinder experiment on plant growth in space, which is a scientifically valid thing to do. You know, this is something that's missed in most of these stories. The very first human suborbital flight that Virgin Galactic did had some science research on it. I'd like to wrap here, Mark, by just talking a little bit more about your faith. Would you be able to share how working in the realm of space exploration has uniquely shaped your faith and your perspective of God? Well, first of all, as it infuses everything that I do, hopefully, it certainly encourages me to do the best science that I can do in the best way, that is ethically treat everyone fairly, do, don't cut corners, those kinds of things. That's not specifically science, right? That Our faith sh- should inform that in no matter what we do. You know, that's biblical, right? No matter what you do, do it as if it's doing it for the Lord and not for men. And that's the way that we should, we should be looking at this. In my particular case, and I, I know this drives a lot of people in science, the privilege of being able to explore the creation, to explore God's creation as a scientist and get, frankly, insights that I don't think you would otherwise get without a scientific view of it. That doesn't mean everyone's insights are not valuable. That doesn't mean it were, scientists are ex- have exclusive rights to awe and wonder. Quite the contrary. We have an obligation to share those insights with other people, which, by the way, is what I think commercial spaceflight is going to allow people to do, experience that awe and wonder directly. I would draw on on that. I think it's an, really it's an honor and a privilege to be able to explore the creation as a scientist. It's a form of worship. Well, thank you so much for sharing so much information with all of us. I definitely know that I learned a lot, and I'm sure many of our listeners did too. So for folks who have feedback for us, questions for us, I'm not sure Ted and I can answer some of the technical questions, but you know, we always love hearing from all of our listeners. Please send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We would love to interact with all of our listeners out there that really love space as much as us. And you can also go on Twitter at CT Podcasts and offer us feedback there as well. All right, now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, and it's when we get to hear something that has brought everyone joy in the past week or so. You're up, Ted. Well, Morgan, I often get to hear about your travels. You know, you just had a cross-country journey yourself. This is true. Uh, Speaking of, you know, human flight, I I was on an airplane for the first time this week since the COVID began, you know, last March. So. Been a long time since I've, I mean, you know, we traveled on family vacation, but we drove to Nashville for a meeting this week. It was great. The moment of joy for me was going to Robert's Western World, which is, you know, this great kind of classic traditional country music venue. And when I was there, there was a Western swing band playing that has been playing there almost every Monday night for the last 20 years. 
it was just delightful. I mean, <laughs> just to just to be out again was was great. But just to hear, you know, you, you walk down that kind of music row in Nashville, and there's you know a lot of places that you know it's like, oh, that's good music. Oh, that's good music. Oh, that's good music. Morgan Western Swing is my jam. I love what I love good Western Swing. Rory Hoffman, who is this multi you know multi instrumentalist guy on on an accordion and you had uh, Craig Duncan, who's actually a, a fiddler who I've listened to for a long time. He was, the, he was on the fiddle. It was, it was so, so great. Delightful. Also live you music know, is something that is live music, awesome. right? Yes. Remember live music. Remember live music. It was great hearing a good old Western swing band that can really go to town on the fiddle and the bass and the guitar. And it was great. So yeah, man. If you're if you're if you ever get a chance Monday night, go check out John England and the Western Swingers on the uh, Nashville Strip down, down in Nashville on the Nashville Strip down at Roberts Western World. It was it was awesome. People can follow me on Twitter at Ted Olson. Morgan, what brought you joy this week? I will choose the opposite of your post pandemic life and say it was the TV show Never Have I Ever, which. <sighs> I feel conflicted announcing that picking a TV show is my precious moment. But I really do like this show a lot. This is a show about South Asian American teenager in Los Angeles who has a lot of audacity. I'll just say that much. She is not interested in hiding. Her name is Davy, And there's a lot of other subplots, obviously, that surround her and the cast. But I watched the first season last year when the only things to do if I left my house were go on a run. Otherwise, I was just at home all the time. And as you can imagine, you get so eager for the next season to come out. And then, unfortunately, you can binge it all in five hours. Just like that. Took you like 14 months to wait for it, and then it's all over. But... Yeah, shout out to everyone making Ted Lasso for deciding to do the same Disney Plus formula of making people wait week by week. And yes, I recognize that that is how most TV shows have been, but I still am going to call it the Disney Plus formula. Anyway, if you watch Never Have I Ever and you're like, I just want to tell Morgan, you know, encourage her in some way, well, email me or message me on Twitter and then we can talk about it because that is always what you want to do after you watch a show that you're really obsessed with. So that was my precious moment this week. And even even more precious moment is if I find more people to talk to about it. That's great. All right. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Mark, over to you. I made a point of talking about the research potential of human spaceflight. And I've alluded to, a little, to my students a little bit, but I didn't really talk about, I am at a university, a medical school in particular, but I have students from, from all parts of the university. I'm primarily a researcher, but on a, also on a good day, I'm an educator, or at least I'm supposed to be an educator. Although I don't teach formally, I mentor a lot of students. I've researched students doing research in my laboratory and things like that. We don't have any children of our own, to, so to a great extent, these students are my children. They may be surprised if they would hear me say that, because I may not treat them that way. <laughs> but, uh, but it is, in fact, true. And and what I mean by that is, to, to a great extent, their success is my success. When they get opportunities that, I have to say, there's some vicarious thrill, because I know I've had some some small part in their success. But in particular, this week or over the last week or so, my postdoctoral student, whose name is Malika Sarma, 
started with me about a year ago. She She's on a roll. Just in the last week or two, she's published two, maybe three scientific papers based on her thesis work, which finished about a year or so ago. So that's no small accomplishment. And the fact that they kind of happened all at once is kind of amazing. That's always a reason to celebrate. But also, she was able to obtain a, a fellowship from a, an organization called the Translational Research Institute for Space Health. So it's a NASA-associated organization that will fund her postdoctoral position with me for an additional two or maybe three years. That was announced. We knew about it a couple of weeks ago, but that was announced publicly just this week. So, so she's been fending off the congratulatory messages for that. And just a couple of days ago, she got word that she will be a test subject in something called high seas. High seas is what NASA calls an analog facility. It's not run by NASA. It's run by the uh, University of Hawaii. It is a facility in Hawaii in which you can put its isolated and confined. So it's far away from everything, and you can put four people in it and pretend that they are on the moon or Mars. Nobody gets in or out for the length of the simulated mission, which in this case will be about a month. And they may go outside, but before they go outside, they have to put on a simulated spacesuit and pretend that they're doing an EVA on a lunar or Martian surface. So this is the way that not only NASA, but other organizations do research to look at how do you maintain not only physical, but psychological well-being when you take a small group of people, lock them up in a relatively small space for a long period of time, and ask them to do physically and mentally demanding work. And she just got word that she was selected for a test subject for that, which is going to be it's going to inform her own research tremendously. So it's been a big week for her, which means it's been a big week for me. That's awesome. Congrats <laughs> That's for great. both of you guys. That's great. Mark, where can people find you outside of this show? Yeah, so I'm not that hard to find if you Google my name, but you have to know how to spell it correctly. But Or you can email me, mshellhammer, one word, at, that's shellhammer as one L, one M, at jhu. Edu, Johns Hopkins University. That is it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The music is by Sweeps and we invite you to support the show by rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts. We also know that we have new listeners for those of you who found us through the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Welcome. We definitely want to hear from you as well. So again, we invite you to send us emails with your thoughts and questions we're at podcast at christianitytoday.com we will see you all next week bye every day ct testifies to the reality that jesus is alive transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.